Welcome to Rewind, the book club where we reread old YA books and tell you our unfiltered opinions with lots of wine involved. We're your hosts. I'm Sarah Jones Dittmeyer. And I'm Emily Cavender. What episode number is this? So, seven Twilight episodes. Eight. So this is episode nine. This is our episode nine. We've arrived. Our second series of unfortunate events episode, making episode nine total, which is wild. This episode is recovering books three and four of a series of unfortunate events, aka child endangerment the entire oh god book four when we get to oh i have a lot to say um but so many thoughts all i can think of is like um erica from season three of stranger things when they want her to like crawl through the air vents and she's like you know what this makes me think of child endangerment don't hate me but i'm not a stranger person well, it applies I've seen, to I've both. Seen quite a bit of it, actually. It applies to both of these books. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it was a little too spoopy for me, so that's fair. She avoided it a lot. <laughs> um, what are we drinking? Well, what are we drinking? Okay, I didn't look at the bottle. I know it's champagne, which I feel like is a very odd choice for this, but it was the only alcohol I had in my house that was mine. Um, I need to go to the store and get some more like rosés, maybe some cocktails. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm drinking champagne tonight. Um, it's actually from France, like from Champagne. Um, so I have no hope of trying to pronounce anything about it. Um, terroir de Cueil something. <laughs> sure. Um, I'm trying to even find, oh, 2016. Um, Equel Montan de Reims, something like that. I don't know. It's <laughs> it's champagne and it's French. That's all I got. Was <laughs> it good? Doing, is it good? Yeah, I just had my first sip and it tastes expensive, which is not something I'm used to because I'm a broke bitch. So I usually buy like not the cheapest, but like the second cheapest wines, you know? The kind that like still gives you a headache after drinking it. It's like, it's like, okay, but you know, but this is really nice. Um, I'm drinking a Spanish red. Nobody's surprised, but I will say (laughs) that I, over the last couple of weeks, I've been on a journey to try other reds and I have I've gone through like four different bottles and been disappointed in every single one of them. So I think that validates me not going out of my comfort zone when it comes to wine. Listen, I'm a big fan of knowing what you like and sticking to it. If that's what you want to do. I feel like with alcohol, that's really all you can do. Right. Like if you like it, drink it. People always like judge me for drinking cheap wine. And I'm like, yeah, but if I expanded my palate, I would have to buy expensive wine. And I don't want to do that. Sure. <laughs> so it's working out I mean, really it's well like for me. find find the wine that you like that's in the price range that you're willing mm-hmm. to pay for. Exactly. That's good and doesn't make you sick. Um, so mine is called Nucero. It's a 2017. It's from Rioja. Um, 
I should know the grape in this, um, but I don't. And the bottle didn't say it. Um, so I don't the know. Grape. Yeah. What do you mean by the grape? Like the type of grape that they use. Mm-hmm. Like if I say it's like a Tempranillo, like that's the grape that they use. Or like a Chardonnay, that like that's the type of grape they use. This one says 85% Pinot Noir, 15% Chardonnay. Okay. Oh, brute. I know that word. That's a champagne word. <laughs> it is. It is indeed. It is. Okay. So tonight we're talking about the wide window and the miserable mill. Um, if you're new here, this is how this works. We reread a book that we read as children, as teens, whatever stage of life we were in. Um, one of us will prepare some questions and discussion starters. Um, and then the other person gets to answer on the spot. So this time it was my turn. So I have lots of notes, um, to cover for these two books, but first I want to do like a check-in about what you remember from when you read these the first time around. Um, yeah. So I feel like my memories of the wide window are stronger than the miserable mill. I really didn't remember a lot from the miserable mill. Um, and I think it's for a couple of reasons. I think like one, two, and three are like the books that you like remember most as you're starting the series, because let's remember mm-hmm. there's 13 of these books. Yes. Um, not only that, but the first movie adaptation that they made with Jim Carrey covered books mm-hmm. one, two, and three. So I feel like that's really like where my memories of the first three stem from, especially the wide window, because just like the visual of the house and who can forget Meryl Streep playing <laughs> Aunt Josephine. <laughs> um, but also because they made a GameCube game based off of the movie, um, there's a whole level mm-hmm. where you have to play um, in Aunt Josephine's house and on the docks off of Lake Lacrimos. Um, so that's really where my memories stem from. It was it was exciting to me because I remembered in the wide window sort of the um, the code that's left in the note that yes. Aunt Josephine writes. And so when I was looking at it, I was like able to be like, oh yeah, yeah, I remember like how how to crack this. Um, but in the in the miserable mill, I couldn't remember. I knew that Klaus got hypnotized. Um, but I couldn't remember what the word was that made him hypnotized and didn't and made him unhypnotized. Um, so I remember like before they solved it, I, I tried to flip back through the pages to figure it out on my own. And I couldn't. <laughs> Same. I remembered the wide window pretty well. Um, I, I think when we started this, I, I didn't have as much of a memory of it as I thought I would. And then I started reading it and I was like, oh, wait, the grammar queen, my idol. I love grammar. Um, and I, I really remembered a lot of it. I remembered faking her own death and I remembered leaving the code and the grammar. And I remembered the leeches, the unfortunate end. Um, I did not remember anything about uh, miserable mill like I didn't remember he was hypnotized so like when he started acting weird I was trying to remember I was like what do they do to him like I have no idea what's going on so it was like kind of fun because it felt like I was reading it for the first time honestly um I remembered that at one point in the series 
they worked in like a factory of some kind. Um, but in my head, I thought it was like mechanical, like they were building things, you know, and maybe that theme comes back later in one of the other books. And I just don't remember. Um, so it might, I don't remember off the top of my head because I feel like different books stand out to me in this series um more so than others because I feel like I always like when I was younger I would always get the miserable mill and the vile village confused for some reason there was something about like the covers of the books that like I would always think one was the other and vice versa maybe because neither one of them had like a single adult figure in them (laughs) like there was one in mill but like we he was in like four pages of the whole book so yeah Okay, so now that we've refreshed our memory, let's dive in. Um, let's dive right in. Okay, so wide window. <laughs> the first note I wrote, Mr. Poe showing his incompetence right out the gate because he offered them peppermints knowing that like, or he should have known that they were allergic, right? Like he's a family friend. He's known them their entire lives. Like my friends that have kids, well, actually, now that I'm saying that, I don't think I know any allergies. Maybe they don't have any allergies. Well, that's Brittany next time I talk to her. Um, but like if I was taking care of children and I was there, like responsible for assigning their custody, I feel like I would know if they had some allergies, right? I mean, you would hope like, and yes, like if, if your friend was just like about to just drop off their kids, like randomly and like, didn't tell you, then obviously you might not know their allergies, mm-hmm. but I would assume that your, your, your friends who are parents, if they have a will and had a plan laid out for who was going to take care of their kids somewhere, somehow there would be like, please do not give my kids peppermints. They're deathly ill. There's a, there's gotta be a medical record somewhere <laughs> yes, within those their medical record totally has to be in there. Um, and like, I feel like Poe is just like the most useless person that's ever existed. He's the worst. So- like, I really was, like, not surprised by him being, like, here, this will make you feel better. A giant bag of something that um, you're allergic to. Also, I feel better. I did just text my friend Brittany because I regularly babysit her kids and they are not allergic to anything. <laughs> so, yeah, I would know if I was responsible for children if they had any allergies. But also, can we just talk about how, like, if you're going to give a kid anything to, like, make them feel better, like, why are you choosing peppermints? Like, get them like cupcakes or get them cookies, like, or like, like little cakes, like something that's just better than just like peppermint candy. Yeah. I feel like the only time in my life that adults have given me peppermints has been like in school during like standardized testing, because it just like helps you focus. It doesn't help you. Or like in your stocking at Christmas, like, (laughs) No, no, not even then. We get chocolate or like we'll see, like, candies. but like I'll usually get like a mix of both. Like, but mm-hmm. no, like the point I was making is like whenever I like see like the red and white like peppermint like circular candies, like it's usually around Christmas time. Mm, like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's just like not. It's not like a comfort thing. No. Like, oh, you don't feel well if you're a little kid. Maybe I'll get you like a hot chocolate. You know. Right. I feel like that gives off the like comforting vibe for children. Yes. A giant okay. bag of peppermints. Absolutely not. No. Anyway. So um, I also thought it was interesting. We've talked about this several times now. I love the way that 
Lemony Snicket uses the books to like teach vocabulary and like vernacular and phrases and stuff to the young reader. Um, and it was very funny to me towards the beginning. Oh, I should have written the page down. Um, for once, Violet actually did have to ask Poe what a word meant. Um, and it was Dowager. Da- that's right. Dowager. I said that right. Yeah. Um, but Poe thought she was asking what taxi meant. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like Poe you're a total idiot and now I gotta find it um yeah it's like it's like of course the one time Violet is actually asking you what something means you don't even understand what she's saying right or uh, you underestimate like what she's asking about like she's not right. asking about the bigger word she's asking about like the simpler word and I think it's interesting because not only does Lemony Snicket like define words and phrases for us throughout the series but specifically with the wide window is he he is introducing common grammar rules through the wide Mm -hmm. window specifically so he takes like one more step into that to sort of give another like English lesson to young readers which I think is awesome yes I found the page um (laughs) Poe says it didn't it didn't seem polite to ask how she became a dowager. Well, let's put you in a taxi. What does that word mean? Violet asked. Mr. Poe looked at Violet and raised an eyebrow. I'm surprised at you, Violet, he said. A girl of your age should know that a taxi is a car which will drive you someplace for a fee. Just okay, like, first of all, um, even if, <laughs> first of all, Violet's smarter than that. Second of all, if even if Violet wasn't smarter than that, it was asking about the taxi, um, maybe let's not make children feel bad about asking questions and not knowing yes. certain things Yes, because I can totally relate to this where, and it's, it's a, it's a flaw of mine, um, that I've really had to like work on. And I still have to work on is because when I was a kid, I would get made fun of for like not being in the know on everything. And so I would just start to act like I knew what was going on, even if I didn't. And so there's a lot of times where I'll pretend to understand something to sort of be in the in crowd and like seem smarter instead of like asking, like, actually, I don't understand that. Can you like, what does that mean? You know, that makes me think of being a child, a very, very sheltered child Mm -hmm. and like other kids talking about things that my parents considered inappropriate um, usually had something to do with anatomy yeah, <laughs> or but that's sex the thing. It's like- and just being like, oh yeah, I totally know what that, I totally know what that means. I'm cool. I'm totally cool. I mean, I can, I can relate to that. And I was not as sheltered as you, but I feel like parents have these talks with kids at so at different times and at different ages and like, or never, you, you know, yes, or never, you know, but <laughs> so not everyone is going to know everything at the same time. And we shouldn't mm-hmm. shame people for not right. knowing and asking a question. It doesn't make them dumb. Like mm-hmm. thousand percent. Um, okay. So we are about to move in with aunt Josephine and we learned there is a hurricane coming to their town. That's not on the ocean. It's on a lake. Lake Lacrimose is big enough to have hurricanes. <laughs> they this, literally go over that. They literally state that. Just no, absolutely not. I'm so- <laughs> what There's I love a- though about this is that, you know, Lemony Snicket, like you can tell by how he's writing it is that he knows that lakes can't have hurricanes. But yes, exactly. This, this world is like 
almost like a slightly alternate universe and he gets to make up certain rules in order for certain things to work, which is why it says in this community, you know, in order to get married, you just need X, Y, and Z Mm -hmm. in the first book. So that plot works. And I feel like he's doing the same thing here where they ask like, wait on a lake. And it's like, oh yeah, this lake is big enough that there are hurricanes. Part of me wonders if there are actually little children out there who thought it was, that was real who like didn't pick up on the, the silliness of it, you know? (laughs) I mean, probably because I'm sure when I read this the first time, I didn't really think much Mm -hmm. of it. Um, but I feel like that's kind of like a harmless sort of fantastical detail that like, isn't Mm -hmm. really steering kids wrong, you know, in general in life. (laughs) One would hope. Um, oh, okay. This, I think this might be the first time I want to talk about the illustrations in the books, Um, so like we get illustrations at the beginning of new chapters and then like occasionally like sporadically in the rest of the book. Um, so they drive up to their new home, which is at the very top of a very steep hill. And the house is like dangling over the edge built on stilts. And we see an illustration of this at the beginning of chapter two. That shit is what nightmares are made of for me. Like (laughs) half the house is not on anything and there's yep. just a few stilts like very and they're very like thin looking stilts yes. they're not even like like for single the, the size of the house <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i'm just looking at it god and i actually forgot that later in the book the house falls when i started this and so when i saw the house my first thought was that's that's not gonna end well this is not nope. gonna end well nope. um So, okay, another, bringing it back to Lemony teaching kids things with the way he writes. Um, He has this whole section where he's talking about the difference between rational and irrational fears because Aunt Josephine is afraid of everything. And none of, I think all of them, except for one, are very irrational. Um, And I thought that was a really cool thing um, that he like made a point to teach that. And so he was talking about how she's afraid of doorknobs because she's afraid if she touches them, they'll explode into a million pieces and like hit her in the eyes. She's afraid of realtors, which becomes a plot point later on in the story. Like there's just so many. um, An open payoff. There's so many irrational fears here. So I was just curious if you had any irrational fears. Oh, gosh. Um. Yes. Um, but I, okay, here, here's one and this one's weird, but i and, but this is along the same lines of Aunt Josephine. Sometimes when I'm driving, you know, um, after dark and like, you know, there's always a risk of deer crossing the road and hitting a deer. I am not just like scared of hitting a deer, but my mind has created this scenario where I hit like a stag and the antlers come through the windshield and like stab me through my throat. That's very specific. <laughs> um, I guess, so I guess that counts. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely. It's rational yeah. to be afraid of hitting an animal with your car, but like to get that specific, <laughs> to like get that specific, irrational. like, and just have my mind go there. And then now every single time I'm like driving after dark, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> um also I like in my notes I like left a blank spot where I could go back and fill in an irrational fear and I'm like trying to think about 
the things that I'm afraid of. And I feel like most of them are pretty rational. Like spiders, they could bite me. Mm-hmm. Snakes, poisonous. I'm sorry, venomous. My friend's 10-year-old daughter yelled at me and was explaining to me the difference between poisonous and venomous recently because they have a pet snake. So venomous, not poisonous. Um, like, <clears throat> well, I don't know. Heights, is that irrational? I don't think that's irrational. I think that sometimes- I think heights, extent- that's a rational fear. I don't like heights yeah. either. Um, um, I will say, okay, boats. And I, I think it's rational to be afraid of a boat when you're like in a place where if the boat crashed, you would die. Mm-hmm. I have never been in that scenario. <laughs> like I, the reason why I'm afraid of boats is because I walk, like got out of bed in the middle of the night once when I was really young and my parents were watching Titanic and I saw the boat going under. And that's all I saw until I was in my twenties and I watched it for the first time. And it made me terrified of boats my whole life. So like we would be on vacation as kids and we were doing this like river tour in boats. The river was like, you could walk in it. Right. So shallow. And I still threw a tantrum about getting in the boat. I don't like boats. Um, I, I'm, I might be going on a cruise soon and I'm scared shitless about it, but maybe I'll overcome the irrational part because it'll be the first time in my life that I'm like on a boat in the ocean. Like I've only ever been on boats and lakes and rivers before. So I don't know why I'm so afraid of them. Um, the other one that I think, I don't know if this is, this was a fear when I was younger and I still think about this all the time. And I don't think I've ever said these words out loud before. So like, bear with me here. Um, when I was younger and to this day, I would like see a total stranger and my brain would jump to what would happen if we freaky Friday'd right now? <laughs> like, what would I do? Like, and when I was little, it started with us being like in the car, like on the interstate. And I'd be like, what if I freaky Friday'd with the person driving that car? I don't know how to drive a car. How would I, like, I, I don't want to die, you know? And then as I got older, it was more like a, maybe like a thought exercise I do sometimes mm-hmm. where I'm like, okay, uh, I'm at a play. What if I freaky Friday'd with the lead actress? What do I do? I fake a seizure a swing takes over the role for the, you know, like that's where my brain goes. It's like, I like in this completely insane scenario that is literally impossible. What would I do in the moment? I don't know. So like when I was younger, I think it was a a rational fear, but now it's more like a game I play with myself. I mean, I I think, I think it stems from like, like, I think it's an, like, I feel like this and the boat, I think are both like rational fears but have an irrational side to it because I think Mm -hmm. with like the freaky Fridaying it's like you're trying to figure out like you don't want to be put in a situation where like you don't know what to do and like you know all of a sudden everything's like you know I didn't know I was going to be getting therapy on this podcast (laughs) tonight (laughs) but I think that that's super valid I am very anxious and I don't like it when I'm not in control of my surroundings and apparently that has been manifesting since I was five years old as an irrational freaky Friday fear yep cool 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 (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna call my mom later and tell her about this great conversation we just had and she's gonna be like you're insane (laughs) um anyway back to these unfortunate events so um something that I really love is the meaning that names have in these mm-hmm. books. So Olaf shows up in his new terrible disguise and his name is Captain Sham, which I find to be 
hysterical. It's like <laughs> literally his name is like, I'm a fraud. Yeah. Um, and he has a horrible disguise with an eye patch on and a fake peg leg around his real leg. But of course it fools Poe because Poe's an idiot. Um, yeah. And there's more name stuff I think that I wrote down for Miserable Mill as well. But um, sometimes I wonder if kids pick up on the jokes in the book that are like in there for the adults, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, not because it's inappropriate, but it's just something that they don't know. So there was a joke in a definition. <laughs> so Aunt Josephine says, I will thank you not to be impertinent. Aunt Josephine said, using a word which here means pointing out that I'm wrong, which annoys me. <laughs> <laughs> like that's not what the word impertinent means, but I like it made me giggle. And I'm like, oh, I bet kids aren't like picking up on that. Um, yeah. And so I just love that, like when authors of children's books, like slip things in there, like for the adults, you know, cause there are a lot of adults who would read this to their kids and yeah, I just, yeah. And and it's also like one of those things where it's like, okay, that's not what the word means. Like normally, but like, it's totally what this word means in this context. Yes. (laughs) But I just, um, I, I just imagine like me as like a very young child reading this. And then the next day, my mom pointing out that something I said or did was wrong and being like, don't be impertinent mom. <laughs> like, cause I totally yes. would do that. I actually got in trouble in the second grade. Like it was on my report card that I needed to stop correcting the teacher so much in front of class. And my response was maybe if you weren't wrong, I wouldn't have to correct you. <laughs> um, anywho. Okay. So back to the insane rules of this universe. In the first book, we talked about how the like rules of um, getting married, it was literally just like signing the paper with your own hand. Um, Well, now we're going to talk about how um, custody was transferred via a suicide note. Yes. Because I feel like this is like kind of contradicting the earlier book, because in the earlier book, it was all about the parents will. But now we have a suicide note that's not a legal document, like has not been verified by anyone, but they're like, oh, well, Mr. Poe's like, sorry, you're going to go live with Captain Sham now because that's what Aunt Josephine said in her suicide note when we don't even know that she's actually dead. Like we have not recovered a body. So um, yeah. What yeah, the there's no investigation about? of like finding no her in the water or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um And yeah, it's kind of like they use her suicide note as like, as her will, um, which I guess like could make sense, but like they didn't do that with uncle Monty. Yeah. Well, I guess he didn't leave a will with instructions for their guardianship, but I had that same thought where I was like, when uncle Monty died, they went back to the will and they were like, cool. Yeah. what we're doing now. But because we had a fake suicide note, they were like, sorry, you're going to go live with this stranger your aunt met yesterday. Yeah. I mean, yes, but also I feel like the will definitely like gets thrown out the window because they end up working at a mill and you can't tell me that sir at the (laughs) mill is like the closest, the next closest living relative because there's like no discussion about how he knows their parents or anything Mm -hmm. like that. It's just kind of like Poe just like 
called around and like well, I asked. Mean, Josephine was already a super, not even a blood relative. Um, but at least she the... was connected to like their parents. Not really. Like she, yeah. I'm finding the list because it was like. Josephine definitely knew the Baudelaire parents for sure. I'm trying to find where it said how she was connected to them. Here it is. Your aunt Josephine. She's not really your aunt, of course. She's your second cousin's sister-in-law. Didn't know that. But parents. I think I'm pretty sure, and I maybe I'm misremembering from like the movies or something like that, but I'm pretty sure like Aunt Josephine and Ike like were involved in the same or like whatever like organization or whatever that like the parents were. Like back maybe in the day. We, maybe we find that out later. Maybe. Because I remember like at some point there's this like weird secret society that the parents were involved in, but I don't really remember yeah. much about it. So, um, yeah, anyway, the, the rules of this in the universe are insane. The end. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, and so it ending with, the, I think one of the chapters ended with like, Aunt Josephine isn't dead yet, which I thought was really interesting. We talked about this with uncle Monty, how we knew way before he died, he was going to die. And I still, mm-hmm. I stand by my theory that like, they did that to like soften the blow for kids because these are mm-hmm. supposed to be like good, good guys that are dying. Yeah. Um, but the, the note that she left her suicide note, I just really want to talk about how genius that was that she was able to like write a suicide note and use incorrect grammar to leave a secret message hidden in the note. I just thought that was so cool as a kid and even now as an adult I mean I love grammar I do a lot of like written comms for my like real job and it's like oh, I just love that and um I think it's like a genius thing personally yeah I agree it was like the perfect way to set and 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 she also is like the one person who I mean all of these guardians besides Count Olaf like Uncle Monty didn't underestimate the kids. And Anne Josephine also doesn't underestimate the kids. Like she's able to put this hidden message in her note, knowing that the kids are going to solve it. Yep. She knew, she knew that Klaus would be able to figure it out. And like, mm-hmm. he spent so much time digging through all of her grammar bugs. Cause there were some that he knew immediately. And then he was looking up all of those grammar rules to like decode it. And I just, Oh, I just loved it so much. Um, yeah, it's like the fact that they were able to decode that message, find an atlas. Well, first, they defined the books about the lake period because they knew Aunt Josephine had hidden them and they were still able to crack the code, find the book. And then the house is literally falling over the edge of a cliff and get out in time. Meanwhile, Sham and Poe were still down in the restaurant taking care of things. Oh, and also the hurricane has arrived. Like all of this is going on, but these like freaking genius kids are able to like get themselves out of this mess. And then they climb down this freaking mountain, steal a sailboat and sail it across a lake in the middle of a hurricane. <laughs> and it's just like, it, I, I feel like the moral of this universe is that like kids are amazing and all the adults are stupid. That was one of the things that I was going to bring up um, during this episode. And I think these two books that really stood out to me was the power that kids have mm-hmm. and how adults just suck sometimes like and kids can figure things out on their own and also kids have to deal 
with things on their own. And there was so much more like child autonomy that was Mm -hmm. like so present in these two books where like it really had the message of like, sometimes you're not going to be able to rely on the adults that are around you and you're going to have to to solve it yourself. yourself. Yep. Speaking of adults sucking, my next note, Aunt Josephine sucks (laughs) is how it starts. Um, I feel like, you know, throughout this whole book, like obviously she's not great. She's afraid of a lot of things, which is really impacting their lives. She's feeding them food, but it's not great food, you know, but like, it's still better than nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. They sail across the lake. They rescue aunt Josephine. They convince her to go back with them only for her to be willing to sacrifice the kids to save her own life. When Olaf shows up, he gets them into her, into his boat as their boat is sinking and the leeches are attacking and he's threatening her. And she's literally like, you can have the kids. Just don't throw me to the leeches. And I felt so betrayed when I was reading that. I was like, all this shit that these kids have gone through, like Monty would have never, Monty loved them. He was great. And then they're stuck with this woman who was willing to throw them to the wolves, literally to save her own ass. Oh, that made me so upset. And Josephine like is so driven by fear that she, it impacts her ability to be a guardian and like care for these kids. Um, and also I thought one of the most unrealistic things in this book was Josephine getting into a boat after having eaten recently. Oh yeah. That really floored me when they were, they were like, come back with us. And she was like, sorry, I live in this Cape now. And then they were like, it's for sale. Realtors are coming. And she was like, okay, let's get out of here. I mean, realtors aren't going to show up in 45 minutes. Exactly. They're going to wait until after the hurricane is over. Second of all, the amount of trauma that she has from her husband dying, she would never get in the boat. Exactly. I remember that the leeches attacked at the end somehow. Um, but I didn't remember like exactly what those circumstances were. So when she was like, they, Klaus or Violet, one of them was like, we'll be fine though. We haven't eaten in hours. And she was like, but I had a banana right before you arrived. And it was like a pit in my stomach. Like <laughs> I was like, oh no, mm-hmm. that's why the leeches are attacking. Um, anyway, it sucks that she died in the end. And it's like really traumatic for the kids to see that happen basically in front of them. Um, but like she freaking sucks. So <laughs> I, yeah, but also that's not the only death that these kids, but like not the only like very violent death that these kids witness in these two books. Mm. Oh, it gets worse. Yeah. Um, okay. One more thought. My last thought on the wide window at the very end, the sunny bites, the wooden peg leg reveals that it's Olaf and Mr. Poe is listing his crimes and Olaf says, and arson. <laughs> I feel like we kind of knew that he was the one who killed their parents, but this is the first part of the series where they pretty much conf- like he confirms that he's the one that actually killed their parents. It wasn't, oh, these orphans are rich. I want their money. It was this family is rich and I will kill them all to get their money. It's like, it's been him since before we even knew who he was, which I thought was like yeah. a very ominous ending. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the end of book three. Now we're going to move on to book four, The Miserable Mill. And we're going to start once again by talking about the insane rules of this universe. (laughs) So 
Poe drops them off, doesn't even take them to their home, like just puts them off the train and says bye. Um, Cause he's been promoted and he's very busy and he's very important. Um, they show up to um, the mill, the lumber mill, because they were told that um, like the person who own- runs it is going to be their new guardian. But when they get there, they discover they have to work there. Yep. Sunny yep. is a literal infant, <laughs> but they arrive, they're given one bunk bed. So it's two beds for three children. So like, once again, we're back to not even sufficient lodgings. Um, they get a gross casserole for dinner. The next morning they get no breakfast. They get a piece of gum for lunch. And then again, a gross casserole for dinner. So not just them. This is everybody who works for the lumber mill yep. lives on site in dormitories. They get paid one. I'm sorry. They get, they get to eat one meal a day and then they're paid in coupons <laughs> that they cannot use because they all require a purchase first and they have no money to make those purchases. So what I want to know is when is the union starting in well, this freaking <laughs> lumber mill? <laughs> If you'll remember at the end of the book, yes. one of the workers is reading about like the government system. Yeah, the and town he's constitution. Like, <laughs> and he's like, I didn't really fully understand everything it says, but I'm pretty sure that's not legal. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, shh, 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 it's fine. <laughs> so at least by the end, we have some hope that sweet, sweet optimist Phil is going to try to do something about it. But like, yeah. But also, can we talk about how, like, Phil deserves, like, paid time off and also, like, disability leave in the Workers meantime? Comp. <laughs> yeah. For literally having his, like, leg bait. So they say he broke his leg, but then also he, he said something like, if you'll just bring me over to my foot, <laughs> which makes it sound like his foot was amputated. I, I mean, I just imagined Phil's just, like, leg. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe he'll be able to stand or, like, like... I can't imagine he can do much more with that leg because it was like with the stamping thing. So I'm just imagining like a huge stamping thing just like crushing it. Yep. Yeah. Like that leg got fucked. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so this this whole like living situation, this whole working situation before they've even arrived was really terrible. But um, like for adults, but then you end the fact that they're children, which just like compounds everything else that's going on. Um, but speaking of names and how all the names have like a secret meaning the name of this town is paltryville and paltry means like meager and everything about this lumber mill is so meager from like the the coupon pay and the lack of meals and and nice lodgings they don't even have windows in their dormitory so they drew windows on the wall like everything about that is paltry um so yeah again loving the wordplay with the name of the town not to mention Georgina Orwell as the eye doctor. Yes. Um, one of my notes later, I, it took me like three fourths into the book before I made that recognition because like, I'd just been saying Dr. Orwell for the majority of that time. And then even once we learned her name was Georgina, it wasn't until at one point she said, call me Georgina. And then I was like, Georgina Orwell, George Orwell, 1984, <laughs> dystopian literature. Oh my God. Big brother. <laughs> the whole building is a giant eye, um, which can we just talk about how extra that is? And I just, oh my God, yes, one of I my questions is, is was Dr. Orwell already there or did 
Count Olaf find her and then they're like, we're going to build an eye doctor's office. So like, but it doesn't seem like there's that much time between book three and book four. So like, how quickly was Uh the build of this like completely extra eye building? (laughs) Yeah, I had all the same thoughts. Um, So they arrive in town and they see this building that's shaped like an eye immediately. In my, first of all, I wanted to say in my head, when they said eye shaped building, I thought like a bird's eye view, eye shaped building. And then we got the illustration and it's like balancing on the point, like a vertical eye. And I was like, oh my God, that's out of control. Um, But yeah, like these books, there's like no time in between them, maybe a few days max. And so I, I feel like in the real world, it would only make sense for that eye doctor to already be there. But what is the likelihood (laughs) like what are the statistics here that they just so happen to end up in this random ass town in the middle of nowhere and there's an eye doctor there who happens to be an expert on hypnosis and also just happens to have an eye which is Olaf's signature symbol yeah and who's willing to commit murder for money (laughs) like all of those things yeah so I very much because I think Cause I think like someone says when they're talking about the foreman, it's like, oh yeah, like the old foreman just stopped showing up like two weeks ago or something like mm-hmm. that. So it, it really hasn't been that long. Yeah. And the foreman is one of Olaf's henchmen. So yeah. it very much felt like the doctor was already there. And then the, and the foreman was there. They got rid of the foreman. So Olaf's henchmen could take over. And then Olaf in drag becomes surely the receptionist for the doctor. <laughs> so yeah, I think it was just a winky dink that the doctor in town, they were probably doing research, found her book and were like, hypnosis? <gasps> Let's fuck with Klaus's glasses so that we have an excuse to get him into the doctor's office and hypnotize him. Yep. Uh, yeah, so I said this earlier, I didn't really remember this book very much. So I kept waiting for Olaf to appear because in the other books, he appears very quickly. Yeah. And then like the whole book is them knowing he's there in disguise and no one believing them. We were over halfway through the book before we actually laid eyes on Olaf for the first time, which honestly just made it like even that creepier because we knew it was going to happen, but we didn't know when or how he was going to show. And the kids even talked about it. Yeah. And Lemony Snicket is smart enough to know that the readers are going to pick up on that and be like, where is Count Olaf? And he even like mentions it and is like, I know what you're thinking Mm -hmm. and he's going to show up just with me for a second. (laughs) It said something like, I know you're thinking, where is he? And the answer is very near. Yes. (laughs) I loved that. Um, So, okay. Here is where I'm going to give you a theory. Sir and Charles are married interesting so sir owns the lumber mill he's their guardian charles is introduced as his partner charles has nothing to do with the business charles says oh you'll be treated like one of the family and sir um basically treats him like a 50s housewife like he is always having him do his ironing in his clothes cleaning for him and he makes all the decisions and anytime charles tries to um like fight back sir like puts him in his place so i'm like y'all are gay but charles is the 50s housewife 
<laughs> Prove me wrong. Okay. I love this theory and <laughs> I'm ready to have it canon. The only thing I would say is that I think there just needs to be, I mean, if Charles enjoys his life as a fifties housewife, you do you bro. Yep. Um, otherwise it seems like the power, there's a big power imbalance in this relationship oh, that yeah. I think they should look at because it doesn't go to therapy yeah yeah (laughs) they need some couples counseling um yeah and then like at the end they were talking about um like when they kidnapped charles and they had him strapped to a board they were like sir's not gonna like when he finds out his partner was murdered (laughs) and i'm like his life partner because This book, when did it come out? This was like before gay marriage was legalized 100%. Oh, yeah. Um, way before. And so like calling someone your like life partner was what most gay couples did at the time. They never said business partner. So <laughs> it's canon. Sir and Charles are gay. <laughs> Confirmed. Um, okay. So now we're going to jump to the very end. Klaus, they discovered he's been kidnapped in the middle of the night. Um, they hear the giant saw machine turn on. They run in and they have hypnotized Klaus into um, using the saw machine and like pushing Klaus, who's tied, not Klaus, Klaus was pushing a board that Charles is tied to into the direct path of a circular saw. I think circular saw, maybe, maybe the other way. I don't know. Um, I think it was a circular Something saw that, in the that, illustration. Also, can we just talk about how it's the slowest moving machine? Oh yeah. I have, I have ever so read slow. about. So slow. Um, and <laughs> there are two huge, there are two huge things here that happen in the climax that I cannot get over. <laughs> um, number one, Sunny has a sword fight with her teeth (laughs) against an adult with an actual sword i like can't even (laughs) i i like couldn't imagine that in my brain like i couldn't make a picture out of that because it's just so absurd (laughs) (laughs) i'm like she's like over here like with her teeth there like a vampire like (laughs) like and they kept yes. talking about the clanging sound of the sword hitting her teeth. <laughs> and I'm like, her lips would be all sliced up. Like, I don't even know. But that just was like, ugh. an infant sword fighting with her mouth. Cool, cool, cool. The second thing I won't get over is the invention. So Violet has had several inventions throughout the series. And honestly, most of them seem pretty realistic. Um, like they're actual things that could have been created with the materials. Now it's Klaus's turn. He chews a giant stick of gum, sticks it to the end of a metal stick, and then uses the stick like a fishing rod to fling the gum, which then stretches. So it's connected to the metal stick on one end, flies across the room over the sword fight, hits Charles's board, and then he's able to pull and the gum pulls the board out of the way (laughs) so that Charles is not murdered by a circular saw. Yes. Why? <laughs> Why? I think this is like the best example of like the fantastical element of these books and how mm-hmm. you have to suspend disbelief while you're reading these. Like mm-hmm. they're not necessarily supposed to be realistic, yeah. but like fantastical and like fun to like suspend disbelief where like for mm-hmm. a moment you're like, there's no way. And then it like just happens to work. <laughs> um 
I think this, I think this is also an important moment though, because this is Klaus's invention and mm-hmm. Klaus is not the inventor. Violet is. And they kind of switch roles in this book yes. a little bit, Violet which I thought was really research. awesome. Mm-hmm. And so I think Violet probably would have come up with something that was a little bit more mechanical. She probably would have like jammed something in the gears or something like that. Like, you know, she, she would have figured it out. Um, but this is the best that Klaus can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it works, but it sounded like to me, like it just got the board slightly out of the way. So I don't think it moves that much. Gum is not that strong, you know, but I guess. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Yeah, just totally ridiculous. I'll, um, I'll roll with it. <laughs> yeah, we're just going to roll with it. Um, and then Sir comes in. It startles Dr. Orwell. She turns and falls into the circular uh, circular sword. I almost said <laughs> falls into the circular saw. So these children see a woman get shredded by a giant saw in front of them. Yes, they do. I think that might be the most traumatic thing that's happened so far yeah um especially when you take into account the fact that like they essentially like i'm sure you cannot convince me otherwise that they didn't hear aunt josephine's screams as they sailed away back to shore so if you couple that with what happens to dr orwell um these kids need intense therapy like they really do (laughs) oh okay so to wrap things up If you remember, we decided in our first series of unfortunate events episode that our check-in for the series is which of the two places would you rather live? So here we have Lake Lacrimose and Paltryville. Where would you rather live? I would rather live in Lacrimose. Yes. Agreed. Um, A thousand percent. Yes. Because I mean, yeah, Aunt Josephine kind of sucks. Her house is not that safe, (laughs) but all you would have to do is point out to Aunt Josephine how unsafe the house is and she would immediately move. I would probably just like go into town and just like eat from like, what is it? The, the laughing clown, dancing clown, crying clown, something. Yeah. Whatever it is. It's probably, yeah. Um, there's probably alliteration in it. I would, I would eat out there every day, like to have a warm meal. Um, yeah, I agree. There's no forced labor in lacrimos. Um, the big dangerous thing are the leeches. Mm-hmm. But as we talked about at the beginning of this episode, I don't like boats, so I'm not going on that lake. So mm-hmm. I would be totally fine. Um, I can get my hot food from the restaurant in town. There are plenty of, um, like there is a town, you know, whereas yes. Paltryville is like pretty much they, they described going down the street with a bunch of businesses, none of which had any windows. There's a psychotic eye doctor and I wear glasses <laughs> and I don't want to go see her. Um, and I'm not only going to get one meal a day. Like that's not happening. So, no. um, yeah. So in the first book we decided, um, Uncle Monty. with Uncle Monty, no obviously. And in this episode, we're both saying we want to live with Aunt Josephine. Yeah. So cool. Well, that's all the notes that I had. Um, last call starting with the wide window. Okay. Um, grammar Nazi guardian is willing to give kids over to a potential murderer to save her, to save her own life. 
That's good. Um, I'm going to go with <laughs> um, sad kids moving with sad woman in a house over a lake that somehow can have a hurricane. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> um, okay. Miserable mill. Do you want to go first this time? Sure. Um, a lot of child labor laws are violated. Um, there is a desperate need for a union and kids watch a woman shredded to death in front of them. The end. Um, there is not enough therapy in the world to <laughs> help these children through what they have experienced at this non-unionized mill. <laughs> 10 out of 10. I love that so much. <laughs> Awesome. Well, that's all I wanted to talk about for uh, books three and four of series of unfortunate events. Our next episode will be in two weeks where we will be talking about books five and six. What is five? Oh, the Austere Academy and the Airsats Elevator. Yeah. Yes, our tagline. The overall plot starts getting really good. Our world widens up a little bit. Also, the Airsats elevator has my favorite joke in the entire series. I can't wait to talk about it. <laughs> Me too. So we'll see you guys next time. First round's on us. Rewind is written and produced by Sarah Jones Dittmeyer and Emily Cavender. It's edited by Sarah Jones Dittmeyer. Music is by Mark Schwedo. Find us on TikTok at Rewind Podcast or on Instagram at Rewind underscore podcast.